Well, good morning, Hillcrest Baptist Church. I hope that you have your Bibles with you. We are back in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Now, we've covered chapter 1, which was the, the opening, Paul's prayer of gratitude for this church. And we come now to the beginning of the, the body of the letter. So let's read together 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to read from verses 1 to 6. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came to you with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the ministry of Paul. We're grateful for this letter that he wrote to a struggling church. And we're grateful for the opportunity we have as the people of God to still our hearts and to hear from you as we come around your word. We pray your blessing over your church again today. And we pray, Lord, that you would be honored in hearts attentive and ears open to what you have to say. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Philip Riken, who is the current president of Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, once gave a description of the perfect pastor. And this description is not far from the expectations that many pastors, many ministers face. He says this, the perfect pastor condemns sins, but never upsets anyone. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight and is also the janitor. He makes $60 a week and gives about $50 a week to the poor. He is 28 years old and has been preaching for 30 years. The perfect pastor smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his work. He spends all his time evangelizing the unchurched and is always in his office when needed. It's not uncommon for pastors to face discouragement in ministry, and sometimes that discouragement comes from unreasonable expectations that the church has, but it is also due, I believe, to the high calling placed on ministers of the gospel in Scripture. We know that we are weak and limited. We know that we fall short, short of the godly ideal. We wish that we could be more and do more. Even Paul felt overwhelmed at times by the needs of the church, living in circumstances where he wasn't able to meet those needs by himself. He had to trust the church into the hands of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. If you recall, Paul had only been afforded a short amount of time with this church in Thessalonica, where he planted a church. 
He was forced out of the city by a severe wave of opposition and had to leave the church to face this persecution. And what is clear from the context in the reading we've just done is that there was some kind of opposition slandering Paul to the church. Maybe it came from within the church. I think it's more likely based on Paul's other words to this church that it was the same opposition that caused the trouble in the first place. Paul doesn't really care about you. He was just trying to trick you for his own gain, for his own pocket, for his own glory. Look, he's just deserted you. So Paul writes in this passage to defend his ministry. He had said, if you remember in chapter 1, verse 5, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So now in chapter 2, from verses 1 to 12, he elaborates, he double-clicks on that statement, as one commentator says. And he reflects on the, the character, the methods, the motives of the apostolic team, Paul and Silas and Timothy, as they were among the church in Thessalonica. He repeats that phrase, you know, throughout this passage and throughout this letter, appealing to them to recall what they already knew to be true about him and his team. It's like under false accusation, you say to those who are close to you, you know me, you know my heart. Now, maybe you find it strange that Paul would spend so much time defending his ministry. Is this pride on the part of the apostle? Now, it's true that often we respond to our criticism with, uh, with pride. Our response stems from an outrage because we've been personally wounded. But Paul's defense of his ministry here is not flow from pride. It is right. His motives are right. Paul knows what could happen if this opposition remains unchecked in the church. If they undermine Paul, they undermine his message And they threaten to shake the very ground that this struggling, fledgling church is standing on. So Paul wants to strengthen the church. You know, Proverbs 28 verse 1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. The the guilty will always try to avoid the questioning, but Paul is saying, okay, let's, let's hear it. Bring out the accusations and I'll refute each one of them by the grace of God. Let's hold my life and my conduct up to the light. And so as we study their example today and next week, the point is not to give you ammunition that you can use to shoot your pastor or your elders with. Rather, it's to give a framework for your prayer for us. The integrity of the gospel ministry inside the church ought to be the concern of all the members of the church. And in a world where preaching has really fallen on on difficult and hard times, we ought as the church of God to have a high expectation for the ministry of preaching. Not an expectation of being entertained, but an expectation that the man who preaches would be faithful to the word of God. And that there would be a faithfulness to God in the lives of the leaders of the church. But as we consider this passage as well, what drove Paul and his team, it's my prayer that it would also hold up a mirror to all of your hearts, to all of our hearts. That we would be able to test our motives 
for the roles that God has given to each and every one of us. The roles that we play in our families, in our workplaces, amongst our friends, and in our communities. Paul and your pastor are not alone in having been entrusted with the gospel. It's been given that trust, that care has been given to all who have received the gospel. As we walk through this text, there are two things that I think are true about Paul that show in genuine gospel ministry that we are to be bold in God, firstly, if we want to stay the course in ministry. And secondly, we are to be satisfied in God in order to keep our motives pure. Those are our two headings for today. Number one, bold in God to stay the course. Bold in God to stay the course. Verse one, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. We face discouragement in ministry when it's difficult to see the fruit of our labor. Perhaps the church is thinking along these lines. You know, all we face all the time is struggle and hardship and persecution and opposition. Maybe it's all just in vain. And Paul will encourage them first. He, he will say to them, struggle and opposition doesn't mean that what you're doing is in vain. In fact, he, he points to the evidence of their ministry being not in vain is that they persevered despite opposition. See, the trouble that Paul and his team faced in Macedonia and in Achaia could easily have caused a double-mindedness in them. A questioning, were we right to come in the first place? Were we right to come to this place? No sooner had they arrived in Macedonia, the first city that they go to, the city of Philippi. They are beaten and thrown into prison and driven out of that city. So they go to Thessalonica and they're driven out of that city as well. They go to Berea and it seems to be fruitful, but they're driven out of that city as well. It's uninterrupted trouble for the team. Maybe they would have thought, if they were me, I might have got this all wrong. I came to the wrong place, or I'm doing the wrong thing. But we so easily forget what Paul knew, that opposition and pressure and even times of lean are not a sign to give up. They're not a sign to give up. This word vain, our coming to you was not in vain, can actually be translated empty. Paul saying, we didn't come to you empty. Some say we came with empty talk or we were empty in ourselves, needing to take from you for our own gain. But we didn't come empty. Paul's saying, my confidence is not shaken by this trouble. We came full. We came knowing we had a message to speak. We came not to take, but to give. And those of you who are enduring right now are experiencing the full benefit of the gospel that came to you. No amount of trouble or hardship was going to deter them from their God-given purpose. Verse 2, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So many false teachers today want to prove the genuineness of their ministry by what? By their prosperity. 
You need to listen to me and trust me and give to me. Why? Well, look at my car. Look at my house. Look at my church. They capitalize on the carnality of the human heart. Follow me if you want the same as me. Give to my ministry and God will give to you. Well, the genuineness of Paul's ministry was seen in the opposite. His perseverance under trial. His perseverance in preaching despite opposition and conflict. He says, having already suffered and been shamefully treated as you know. Now, this is to the church in Thessalonica. How did they know what happened to Paul in Philippi? The evidence was still there on their bodies when they rolled into town. They bore the bruises of a very real and physical suffering. That that is a strong term there in the Greek, been shamefully treated. They had been treated as the scum of the earth. To my shame, my day is thrown out if I get one nasty email. If Paul and Silas and Timothy had been in it for the money or for glory or for making a name for themselves, they had not been doing a good job. But they weren't in it for that, for earthly gain. And so there's a boldness in them that could not be beaten out of them. It was a boldness, Paul says, in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. Now, as a a young preacher, I spend a considerable amount of time thinking how to, to get better at my craft. Thinking about delivery and streamlining my prep to free up time for other important things as well. And, and that's all fine. But when I walk up to the pulpit, if my confidence is in my ability or my wisdom, even in my preparation, I've missed the mark. My prayer in the week is, God... You know what your church needs. So help me work that into my heart. And as I come to the pulpit, as I approach, my prayer is always, God, help me to get over myself. And you bring your living word to bear in the life of your people. Paul was bold in his God to speak. Bold, firstly, in his knowledge of God. He knew what they needed to hear, even if they beat him for it. And by the way, Philippi was not the first beating that Paul received, not even the worst. Before that, in a town called Iconium, I think it's in Acts chapter 14, Paul was literally dragged out of the city by the people where they stoned him and then left him for dead. I love that passage. It says he gets back up and it doesn't just say he carries on with the ministry. It says he goes right back into the city, preaching the gospel of God. Paul was bold in his God, knowing that God would use the the weak messenger and his despised message. And they didn't come into the city timidly, but with full conviction in the gospel, because they knew that that gospel would not return void. And Paul was bold to speak with freedom ultimately because he knew that he preached for an audience of one. That phrase, in our God, can actually also mean before our God. We had boldness before our God to speak. When Paul preached, he knew that he preached not, he did not stand alone before men, but he stood in the presence of God before men. 
that assurance of the, the presence of God to strengthen when we are weak, that has marked every person who's done anything of real kingdom value throughout the history of the world. Men like David who followed God and waited and trusted and repented, were repented and followed for years and years, trusting in God's faithfulness. There was one time where even, I mean, David was opposed wherever he went, but there was one time where even his own men wanted to stone him for something that, that had happened. But it says in 1 Samuel 30 verse 6 that he took strength in the Lord his God in that moment. Men like Charles Simeon, who have been an inspiration to thousands of reformed preachers in the, the last while in the church. He was faithful for decades in a church where there was a strong faction, an important faction that wanted him out. They locked him out the church so he couldn't get in at times. They barred access to the, the pews so people couldn't sit. They made life difficult for him. But year after year, day after day, he was faithful to his calling because he wasn't trying to please people. He was trying to please his father. Men like Martin Luther, who stood alone before the wrath of the Pope and the council of the church, isolated and threatened, but who said, as we know famously, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. If we want to have an impact for the gospel, we need to know who God is and find our courage in Him. We need to know Him and be courageous in Him. John Stott once said, Clarity without courage is like sunshine in the desert. Plenty of light, but nothing worth looking at. Courage without clarity is like a beautiful landscape at nighttime. Plenty to see, but no light by which to enjoy it. Well, Paul spoke with clarity and with courage, boldness in his God. And so he resisted the temptation to water down his message, the gospel. Verse 3, he says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. When he says there without error, he's referring to the content of his message. Paul says, I know what I saw. I saw the risen Lord and I repented before him. He sent me to the Gentiles and I go because I know the truth. I know the truth. Paul's point is this. Would I take the beating that I took in Philippi and then come to you with the same message if I was making it all up? And by the way, 1 Thessalonians is a, a, an historical document. We know that Paul wrote it. There's not much debate there. And his confidence ought to inspire confidence in us. The proof of the genuineness of Paul's ministry is actually also the proof of Christianity. The proof of the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection life for those Preachers of the gospel, those first century Christians, wasn't a life of health and wealth. They weren't out for a buck. It was a life of sacrifice and persecution and suffering. But they suffered for what they saw. And they knew it was too important to hide. Their debt of gratitude, their love for a dying Savior who had risen to life and to give life, that weighed more than earthly comfort. 
Paul says, without impurity, we came to you. That means without immorality. And the vast majority of the uses of that word in the New Testament refers to sexual immorality. We know that it was very common in this day for there to be, especially in this region in ancient Greece, um, traveling philosophers, orators they were called. They would go from city to city speaking. They were good at their craft. It was a form of entertainment. And they gained popularity and fame, even wealth through what they did, their ability to awe people. They were akin to modern day celebrities and Very often they were motivated by the lusts of the flesh. Unfortunately, it's not uncommon even in the church to see the position of respect used for self-gratification. One of the signs of a false teacher, whether it's Paul's day or our own, is the use of the power provided by the position in the church to abuse people for gratification. Whether that's gratification of the flesh or of one's pride. And so often what we see in, in the world and the church is that we turn a blind eye. to We excuse the flaws of these so-called great men. That wasn't the ministry of Paul. He came without error, without impurity. And he says finally with no attempt to, to deceive. That's just one word in the Greek that literally means a bait or a a trap. You know, when a fisherman is catching fish, he uses the right lure for the job. And if that lure or that bait is not working, he changes the bait. If Paul was a charlatan, he would have just, if he just wanted to use people for his own selfish gain, he would have changed his tune after being beaten. Many preachers do change their tune, water down the gospel. It's because being liked or admired or sometimes even having a a, a bigger church is more important than faithfulness to God and His Word. Most preachers today are judged on their sermon by how entertained the people in the congregation feel. How funny were the jokes? How moving were the stories? There's no problem with humor or stories, but we ought to have a different standard, right? Preaching is this. It's when the word of God has laid hold of a man. Laid hold of him in the week. And he's seen something beautiful. And so Sunday comes and with conviction and boldness in his God, he speaks. And when that happens, the Bible becomes more precious to the people of God. And God becomes more glorious and that helps to create a people who are more bold themselves and their God to speak. To speak to their children, to their co-workers, to those scared or angry or worried members of their community. As I've heard some of you have been doing. The apostolic team spoke spoke boldly in their God because they had a sense of gravity. And the calling, the high calling that they had received. Number two, we are to be set apart to God with pure motives. Set apart for Him. In 
a biography written about John Stott. It was told how he, he was a, really a brilliant student at Oxford. And in this time in his life, his parents did not want him to go into the ministry of the church. And so in a letter to his father, he wrote this. He said, whatever you may think of it, I have had a definite and irresistible call from God to serve him in the church. During the last three years, I have become increasingly conscious of this call. My life can be summed up in the words, separated unto the gospel of God. There is no higher service. I ask no other. This sense of high calling is what gave focus to the ministry of Paul and Silas and Timothy. Verse 4, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul knows that they've been given something precious, something that they're called to steward with reverence and awe. Entrusted with the gospel. He calls it the gospel of God throughout this letter. The gospel about him and belonging to him. There are two very, da- very different dangers that the gospel minister must avoid in standing in the pulpit. The first is to be consumed by his ego, by self-importance, to think too highly of the messenger. But the other is this, to think too lowly of this task of being entrusted with the gospel. That problem leads to a lack of gravity that avoids carefulness and reverence and the toll that preaching ought to take on the preacher. And notice here Paul's emphasis is not in the outward, in the delivery, but on the inward motivation. E.M. Bounds once said, The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. The same word is used twice here in verse 4. The word approved there at the beginning and, and tests, God who tests our hearts at the end. It's, it's this word that means to examine something, to check and see its quality. It's the word used of testing metals before use. In minting of coins or in other things. God sees where no one else can see. He sees the heart. And I find it amazing that Paul's defense in this passage isn't just show me where my conduct was lacking. His defense is God is my witness that my heart was pure before you. I'm not here to win popularity contests with traveling orators. I'm not here to tickle ears. I want to please my father. We speak, he says in verse 4, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. And specifically again, like when he says their boldness in God was evident in three things. The appeal was made without error without impurity or any attempt to deceive. So again here, Paul points to three ways that their hearts were set apart for their God in verses 5 and 6. He says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. As I've told you before, Noah wants to be many things, and primarily at the moment he wants to be a builder. 
The other day he said to Sheree, I think they were in the car, he said, do, do builders make a lot of money? Maybe I should be a, a preacher instead. So Sheree said, well, preachers don't really make a lot of, of money. So he, he paused for a second and he said, yeah, I suppose people have to like the preaching, hey? The temptation to preach for a salary is great. To tickle ears. Or more than that, maybe to forego the challenge. Forego the high demands of discipleship. Not laying that, that burden upon the people. But faithfulness on the part of God's people is to pray for and actually to expect courage from the person who stands behind the pulpit. That he would not use words of flattery, but would use words of challenge, the searching words of Scripture. And it's faithfulness on the people of God to respond to Scripture with introspection and with honesty before God. Paul says, you know we didn't come to you with words of flattery. In other words, there was a discernible difference between their ministry and the, the local orators whom the second century satirist Lucian said went about the country trimming the fatheads. You know we didn't come with flattery. The word for pretext there is the word that means mask. It implies this false front hiding ulterior motives. Paul will go on to, to point out that while he was with them, he didn't even draw a salary from them. He didn't take anything from them. He worked a, a secular job to, to, to make ends meet in order to plant this church in Thessalonica. Literal tent making. But greediness is not just for money in the pulpit, in the pastorate. So Paul finally says in verse 6, Nor did we seek glory from people whether from you or from others. The Baptist pastor who may not earn a great deal of money can still be quick to decry the excesses and the abuses of charlatans or the so-called or the self-proclaimed prophets or apostles. But that same pastor can still be in danger of fleecing the flock of Christ for the personal gain of acclaim and praise and honor and the approval of man. The pastor ought to be well thought before God and man, but that does not flow from a desire for the glory of man. It flows from the, the yearning in the heart to hear one thing, and that's from the Father, well done, faith, good and faithful servant. An old Puritan prayer says this, It is my deceit to preach and pray and to stir up others' spiritual affections in order to beget commendations. Whereas my rule should be daily to consider myself more vile than any man in my own eyes. Let me learn of Paul. Lord, let me lean on thee as he did and find my ministry thine. And church, for all of us, what if we really believed that the opinion that truly mattered belonged to the one who sees our hearts? can see into our hearts, into our motives. Those used in God's kingdom know that they preach, that they live, that they parent, that they work, and that they play for an audience of one. It's often said of John Knox, the great Scottish reformer, that he 
feared no man because he feared God alone. And he lived in a, a day where saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing often led to the stake. Queen Mary, who sent many to the stake, said of Knox, apparently, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Where are the courageous men in the church? Pray, pray for your leaders. We live in a day of uncertainty that calls for great wisdom. And where does wisdom start? Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Pray that your leaders would fear God more than man. That we would live for His pleasure over the approval of man or the gratification of the flesh. Pray for me or any who step into this pulpit that we would take seriously what it says written here. Let us see what? Not human skill. Not human wisdom and not a good time. Show us Christ. Let us see Christ. Pray that we would follow the example of Christ who demanded much of his hearers. Pick up your cross and follow me, he said. He demanded our lives, allegiance, our honor, our glory. He didn't flatter and he didn't trick people into the kingdom of heaven. He spoke in parables. And hard to accept sayings. So that the disciples said, Lord, this is a difficult teaching. Why are you making it so difficult for people to rally around you? But those who stayed, stayed because something was clear. They knew he had the words of eternal life. And that life was found in no one else. May we declare that from this pulpit. Pray that we would want to please God more than we would want to please you. Pray that we truly desire greater glory for Christ and not glory for ourselves. Pray that the pulpit ministry at Hillcrest Baptist Church would flourish with a prophetic edge. The kind of thus saith the Lord that simultaneously makes people angry and builds a repentant and holy remnant. Pray for your church. Pray for one another. Passing are the days where obedience to Scripture can, can remain unnoticed. And pray for the opportunities that will come in the world as we cling closely to the Word of God and to boldness in our God. Pray for one another. It's certainly not the preacher's trap alone to fall prey to desire for the praise and the glory of man. Pray that we would all own the gospel ministry as we We'll sing in a minute, rejoicing in our Redeemer, our greatest treasure, our wellspring, the wellspring of our souls, as we put our hope in Him and are satisfied in no other but in Him alone. Paul is not alone in having been entrusted with the gospel. Your pastor is not alone in having been entrusted with the gospel. Every child of the King is the bearer of that message. And before you say, I'm too weak, I'm unworthy, welcome to the club. Augustine said, God does not choose a person who is worthy, but by the act of choosing, he makes him worthy. It's not that God was looking around for somebody to, to help and help him out of a jam. And thank goodness he found Paul. Listen to 
how Paul himself puts it. In 1 Timothy 1 from verse 11, he says, In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted, I thank Him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. In verse 16 he says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. We are all the weak. We are all the fragile, the jars of clay that house the treasure of God, the gospel of God for a lost world. And we are called in different ways, yes. But we are called in our roles, in in our ministries, to show them Christ. To show the world Christ. Not in our strength, but boldness in our God. And with hearts yielded to the sufficiency of Christ. Let me pray. And then we're going to sing about this, about Jesus, who is the wellspring of our soul, who satisfies us and gives us our identity, that gives us the strength to go into the world with the message of Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, you have entrusted your church, weak and frail and fragile as we are, prone to wandering as we are, prone to glory-seeking as we are. You have entrusted us with the message of the gospel. That message is that we have in Jesus Christ a Savior who loved us and showed us grace and mercy, unworthy as we were and are for that mercy. It is in you that we find our identity. It is in you that we find our strength. And so I pray that you give us boldness in you. That we would seek your glory, the glory of Christ. And that you would send us into the world. Father, I pray your protection over this church. And over the ministry of the word in this church. Make those who would preach and would lead in Hillcrest Baptist Church. Make them very aware that you search us and know us and you know the desires of our hearts. Purify our motives. Purify your church, we pray. Amen.